Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I've Allison Young is my guest today. She's the author of Pandora's Gamble, Lab Leak, Pandemics, and a World at Risk. Uh, Allison's a veteran journalist, and uh, I'm going to ask her about her background and uh, this latest work right now. So welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if you would tell me about, uh, you know, uh, your career as a journalist, what, what got you into it and uh, any really interesting anecdotes that come to mind? Sure. So I have been a journalist for quite a long time working at news organizations all around the country from the Dallas Times-Herald, the Arizona Republic, the Detroit Free Press, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and uh, USA Today. I've covered primarily health environment and consumer issues over the years. And one of my you know, interesting distinctions is that for the past 15 years, one of my areas of specialty has been reporting on laboratory accidents. And that's a somewhat unusual and obscure specialty in the world of investigative journalism. But it goes back to my time when I was the full-time CDC beat reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I know. So, I mean, who who knew that lab accidents would become a specialty? But I've been reporting on this long before COVID-19, long before uh, the, the whole concept of a lab leak hypothesis came um, into the world's, you know, questions. And so it's been an interesting time for me to watch some of the things that my reporting has warned about going back far more than a decade being the subject of international scrutiny. So how come your book is entitled, I Told You So, Observation <laughs> from Observing This? You know, perhaps that uh, is something that, that we might have considered. I mean, it's one of the things that I think has been lost in all of the controversy over the lab leak hypothesis is that so many people see this as a political issue and something that has been politicized, but this didn't used to be something that was a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. I When I was writing about lab accidents at the CDC in Atlanta, there were hearings in Congress and they were bipartisan hearings. I, I, when I was doing the book, I went back and refreshed my memory and was pulling reports from the Government Accountability Office, which is a nonpartisan. I mean, it, they're as nonpartisan as can be in government. These are, are folks who are auditors and accountants and the like. They've been warning for more than a decade that the proliferation of high containment research at not just just government facilities, but at private industry and at universities in the United States and all around the world is putting us at an increasing risk of a catastrophic lab accident that could cause an epidemic or a pandemic. And so that has been something that has been out there that that has not been a political issue. It has been something that has been a very sober and concerning issue among not just academics, but politicians as well before everything uh, happened with COVID. Yeah. I mean, supposedly if COVID affects everybody, why would there be people that, you know, first of all, said, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. 
and then try to politicize. It doesn't make sense if it, you know, if it, this is a true disease that affects everybody. What would motivate someone to do that, to politicize it? You know, figuring out the motives in all of this, I think, is really difficult. What I can say is that, to be sure, there are conspiracy theories that are out there. But from the very get-go, it should never have the whole concept that COVID-19 could have come from a major coronavirus lab that happens to be in the city where their first cases were detected, the dismissal of that as a conspiracy theory is something that should never have happened. And, and there were a variety of sort of offshoot kinds of stories that may not have had uh, any basis, in fact, and, and may, in fact, be really sort of wild out there kinds of theories. But that core concept that this pandemic could have started with a lab accident was the kind of thing that should have been investigated from the very start. And unfortunately, because of how this has been handled and the re refusal of the government in China to participate in an independent and thorough forensic inquiry, um, it has made it incredibly difficult to rule in or rule out whether a lab accident caused the pandemic. Well, I mean, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but to just fast forward to to today, what's the likelihood that you believe it was a lab leak versus, uh, you know, some event of a virus jumping from one animal to, to humans. I wish I could tell you I knew what the answer to that question is. I think part of the challenge is that we don't have a lot of good data for knowing either of the theories. There is circumstantial evidence for both the lab accident hypothesis and the whole sort of idea that it came from a seafood market or one of these wild animal uh, uh, trading uh, markets in Wuhan. But it is, I think that those who are the loudest and who are saying they know for sure where this came from, I would ask to really sort of see the data there. And and I have not seen that. But I mean, you have this specialist background. So what, what do you see that either corroborates or clouds the issue, any major element? I think that um, the starting point for me is what I talk about in Pandora's Gamble, that we have a history of laboratories you know, the best run labs here in the United States and around the world having very serious safety breaches. And there is a long history of when accidents happen, the organizations that have these accidents also go to great lengths to keep what happens secret from the public and from policymakers. And so that is something that I think is really important in the context of viewing how something could have happened in Wuhan. When it comes to the kinds of things that, you know, that I look at and when I'm weighing what, you know, what may have occurred here on the natural origins side of things. You have obviously the main way that pandemics happen. The default position is that they come from nature. You have human beings that are encroaching upon wildlife and wild places all over the world. And, and you have trades and exotic animals. And when people come into contact with increasing frequency with these animals, that's how you have the potential for uh, an animal virus to leap into the human population and begin its spread. And so that is also how the first SARS virus back in the 2003 timeframe, that virus made the jump from a wild animal market in China. And so it's an obvious question to be asking, did SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that caused the COVID-19 pandemic, did that virus also come from some sort of 
bat to an intermediate animal to humans through exposure in the wildlife trade. So that is a very obvious thing. There also is data that indicates that a number of the early cases of COVID-19 in Wuhan were associated with something called the Wanan seafood market. But the biggest challenge is that that early data is, is incomplete. And there were, in the early days of the pandemic, part of what the epidemiologists, what health officials were looking for were cases that were associated with the wildlife market. So there's the potential that they are overrepresented in those that are reported. But there also are sort of larger questions about whether because the government in China has not participated in the requested studies from the World Health Organization, there are questions about whether a large number of other early cases have not been publicly reported. So that on the natural origin side, you you do have these links to, to this wildlife market in Wuhan, but you have incomplete data. You then also have the circumstantial evidence of one of the world's leading coronavirus research labs that was engaged in going out and doing virus hunting that was based in Wuhan. And it's important to know that the kinds of bats that tend to carry these SARS-like coronaviruses, they don't live in in the area around Wuhan. They're about a thousand miles away. So for this to have emerged in Wuhan was unusual. And in fact, the woman who was the lead coronavirus scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, when and she has been public bat lady. Yes, Xi Jing Li. She has been quoted as saying that when she was first alerted to this outbreak and that and that it was a SARS-like virus, she didn't sleep a wink and she immediately was checking her own lab because she was concerned that it had potentially leaked from there. She has since said that they never had the virus before people started getting sick and that it didn't come from her lab. And they, yes. You know that CCP came in and put a gun to her head metaphorically and said, Here's what you say. There's no way that would let her freely say what she wants to say in regards to this, or at least I highly doubt it. You know, there there's no way for me to know what has transpired with what she said. I mean, there are a number of her colleagues who are adamant that, you know, she would, what she says should be trusted base value. But the Associated Press and, and others have reported on the crackdown and the orders that went out in the wake of the emergence of the pandemic that really restricted speech by scientists and had to have scientific information cleared relating to anything about the origins of the pandemic. So there are reasons that there are people who are are very skeptical whether she would be allowed to speak freely about where the pandemic came from. So that is something that is the subject of questions. And over time, there have been a variety of documents that have come out, including a leaked proposal to the U.S. to the U.S. government through a defense agency called DARPA that in 2018, so you know, not all that long before the pandemic began, there had been a proposal between a variety of international research researchers, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology and a couple of major labs uh, out in Asia, as well as in the United States, and a group called EcoHealth Alliance that has been involved with the Wuhan Institute of Virology for some time. They had a proposal to do research to essentially go and seek out some of these high-risk SARS-like viruses and basically manipulate the viruses in ways that, that some have viewed this proposal as, as being doing the kinds of experiments that could potentially give rise 
to the kind of virus that caused the pandemic. Those involved in that research proposal have said it was never funded and therefore the experiments were never done. But it does, some experts say, indicate that there was a great interest in creating as part of their experiments some lab manipulated viruses that might have had the characteristics of what we have now seen in the pandemic virus. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Well, in general, you mentioned that labs have the high potential for you know catastrophic leaks. So just in general, besides the Wuhan lab, what are some of the reasons that labs have had problems? You know, these high bio-level labs that are dealing with, you know, very dangerous pathogens. Uh, what goes wrong to cause problems at labs in general? There are a whole host of things that can go wrong in these kinds of labs. And part of it is the reality is that labs are made up of human beings and human error is a constant risk in these kinds of facilities. When I first started reporting on high containment labs, I was like most people in the general public. I just assumed that these facilities were operated, you know, in the most heavily regulated manner, that everyone working in them followed the protocols absolutely to the letter, that machinery and safety systems were redundant and well-maintained and and that, that these kinds of issues couldn't occur. And so it was very eye-opening for me and, uh, about what I was seeing at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as when I was the beat reporter there, where here is one of the world's foremost public health laboratories, and they were having all kinds of accidents in their labs. And I had never heard anything like this. And and the reality is, is most people haven't heard anything about it because it's so difficult to get the information. And so the ways things can go wrong in labs, I've reported on, and, and the book talks about incidents where you have deadly bacteria that essentially hitch rides out of these labs on workers' dirty clothing. And then it's carried to areas where it can spread contagion after that probably seen the spacesuit-like protective gear that's in a lot of movies, and that's used in biosafety level four labs, which are the highest level of labs that work with pathogens like the Ebola virus. Those kinds of spacesuits, the documents that I've reviewed, end up springing leaks on a regular basis. You have high-tech safety systems and airflow systems designed to keep pathogens inside of these contaminated lab areas and not blowing out into clean corridors where scientists aren't wearing protective gear. Those kinds of systems have failed on numerous occasions in the labs that I write about. You have vials of of viruses and bacteria that have gone missing. You have researchers who are bitten by infected animals. Um, And in some cases, what I've found in my reporting is that they're allowed to still move about in public, coming into contact with friends and family while they're waiting to see whether or not 
symptoms appear. So there are a wide range of issues that range from the human error kinds of things. People cut themselves with a contaminated scalpel while they're doing an experiment. They drop a Petri dish and splash themselves. They forget to connect an air hose properly to their respirator when they're working with an aerosolized disease. And all of those kinds of things potentially cause the person working with the pathogen to become exposed. And one of the things I I talk about in Pandora's Gamble that I think is important to remember. I always sort of thought about lab accidents in terms of the scientists themselves becoming infected. But it's important to remember a lot more people beyond scientists work in these facilities. There are animal caretakers who are working and potentially have the potential to be exposed to infected animals or who are cleaning out their cages and there are infectious bedding materials for these animals or they're hosing down animal rooms. There are the what's going down the drains in these facilities. Is it properly decontaminated? That's one of the other ways pathogens can get out of these facilities. So there are far more ways than, you know, you could even think of that pathogens can get out of these facilities. And the good news is that there are a variety of protocols and systems that are designed to keep them inside, but they don't always work. And one of the challenges is, is how often don't they work? And the public is largely blind to that because so much of this is kept secret. So how good or bad is the track record of these high containment labs? I know that you won't, you know, that I'm sure they would not disclose a lot of the incidents. Like, is there a international reporting database with standards so that things are recorded, even if there was a near miss and not a catastrophe? Like, what are all these labs like? Like, how likely is it that mistakes are being made? What's shocking is there is no universal requirement in the United States or around the world for the reporting of lab accidents. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's something that is regulated in a very piecemeal kind of way that the oversight is fragmented. It may depend on the specific pathogen or who is funding the research, or what kind of a facility it's in as to whether or not it gets reported anywhere. There is, in the United States, for instance, the only sort of regulatory aspect of biological research when it comes to the safety of the research itself is a program called the Federal Select Agent Program, which is jointly run by the CDC and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. CDC taking the lead on most of the labs that work with human and or human, both human and animal pathogens, and the USDA focusing on agricultural agents. That particular program, which emerged out of concerns about bioterrorism overseas, several dozen, about 60 or 70, I believe, is is the number on the federal select agent list of pathogens that are deemed to pose a significant public health threat or a threat to agriculture. And so it can be things like anthrax or plague or the Ebola virus, as well as a variety of agricultural pests that could devastate livestock or crops. That program does have mandatory reporting of accidents. And so this is a small subset of biological labs in the United States. There are only about 200 labs that are part of the Federal Select Agent Program. Among those 200 labs, to give you an idea, and this is the 
only area where there's this mandatory reporting. About 70 to 100 incidents are reported a year to the federal select agent program. And when we're thinking about how a lab leak, so to speak, might occur, one of the ways is for a worker to become exposed. In those 70 to 100 incidents that are reported a year, for the period 2015 through 2021, more than 800 lab workers were potentially exposed and required medical assessment or treatment. And one of the other things I learned while researching the book is that in most cases, the good news is in most cases, workers don't become infected when they have these kinds of accidents and incidents. So that's great news. And so it's a, a relatively small subset who become infected. In most cases, we all get lucky in the sense that they may become infected in those cases with a pathogen that does not spread easily from person to person. But the concern is in these sort of subset of, ex of experiments where incidents occur with what's called a potential pandemic pathogen, something like an, a lab-manipulated influenza virus or a coronavirus. Those are the ones you really worry about. And, and one of the things the research has found is that in most cases, when lab workers become ill and infected, most of the time they have no idea that an accident even occurred. So when we're talking about these 70 to 100 incidents that are reported per year, there are, there are far more ex potential exposures that are going on where workers don't realize that they've been exposed, that you know, they may actually become infected and they have no idea that they didn't have an obvious splash or a cut or an animal bite, but they somehow or another become exposed to the pathogen. Well, now that COVID has happened, is there any push to uh, make universal standards of stricter ones or everyone's like, whatever? There has been far greater interest in part because the public is gaining awareness of these problems. Among the, the lessons that I think have been learned by the public and by policymaker is that the world doesn't have any frameworks in place to ensure that there's a credible independent investigation to determine whether a lab accident has caused an outbreak or a pandemic. I mean, there are certain international United Nations World Health Organization procedures in place if it's a suspected biological weapon or if it is just a run-of-the-mill kinds of outbreak. But when something falls in this netherworld of it might be nature, but it looks like it might actually be some sort of an accident, there isn't really a process to ensure that there is a, a credible investigative body. And so there are groups that are working to try to build that kind of a framework. There also have been Efforts here in the United States, including some recent recommendations by the, the National Biosecurity Advisory Board at NIH to strengthen the oversight of some of the riskiest pathogens, work with pathogens that have the potential to cause pandemics. And so some recommendations have been made to the White House. But for instance, there is right now legislation that's being contemplated in Congress that would try to set up some greater reporting of laboratory accidents in the United States, which would apply to a much wider range of labs. But the way that the, that legislation is written, it would keep that information and require that it is exempt from the Federal Freedom of Information Act. So, And that's something that has concerned some officials about whether there will be 
not nearly enough public transparency of what is going on in these labs if that information is still kept secret and collected. Okay. Well, very good. Can you restate the name of your book and what other resources are there people that want to find out more? Sure. The book is called Pandora's Gamble, Lab Leaks, Pandemics, and a World at Risk. One of the things that I love about this book is that it's written for regular people. This is not a book that's written for scientists. It it tells stories of real people throughout history, going back to the U.S., uh, the founding of biological safety programs at during uh, after World War II at Camp Dietrich in Maryland. So you meet actual people who have throughout history been involved in these lab accidents and efforts to try to improve safety. The book is heavily footnoted. So if you want to sort of check my facts and, and do some more research for yourself, there are hundreds of links and footnotes to the original source documents in the book. And so you can do reading there. You also can go to allisonyoungreports.com where I have information on the book as well as some of my other reporting that I've done over the years on lab accidents. Okay, very good. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about this really important topic that I hope gets addressed. So thank you. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.